Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to another episode of the Rattlecast. This is episode number 64. Our special guest today is David Mason, all the way from Tasmania, Australia. Uh, we'll just get to him in just a bit. Uh, but first, I should say that Rattle's a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. And um, if you like poetry as much as we do, please click the like button or share, click the bell. I think now both Facebook and YouTube have a bell, so click that. If you're watching after the fact, especially on iTunes, give us a rating, um, give us a, a like on, I think it's likes on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, I think there's a rating system. There's either a rating or a like or some kind of button wherever you're listening to this, whenever you're listening to this. So please do click on that um, when you can. Now for the warm-up poem today, the mail just came. Um, or actually, I just got the mail, I should say, which I don't do as often as I used to in the uh, COVID days. And um, the uh, new Pushcart Prize anthology came in the mail, the best of the small presses. And I just love the Pushcart Prize. Look at how thick this is. This is, um, if you never read a Pushcart Prize anthology, it is worth your um, $19.95. You should check it out. We have two poems in the Pushcart this year, 2001. And I thought I would read as the warm-up poem one of them. Um, this is A Town Somewhere by Ted Couser. And um, I asked Ted if he could be on the show, and he said he wished he could, but um, I guess he's having some vocal trouble. And uh, maybe in the future he might be on the show, uh, but he hasn't been yet. The other poem in here is... Um, by John Philip Johnson, who was on the show back in uh, the spring. So you can go check out his, his um, Rattlecast and read his poem back then. But uh, since Ted, Ted can't be on, I thought we would share that poem as the warm-up poem today. Uh, this is A Town Somewhere by Ted Couser. Here we go. A Town Somewhere. I'd like to find it for you, but I can't. You might not like it anyway. It's quaint and pretty in an old, worn way quite near to me at times. But then it's gone, impossible to find. I've been there always, but I haven't been, if you can understand. It's a town that I remember in sweet detail that was never. It would be simple to find someone to love. It's so open there. Whenever there's a fence around a stand of flowers, bachelor's buttons, there's a gate with a hook and eye, latch, that a finger can lift. And whenever you see shutters framing windows, they're decorations only, for they shut out nothing. Those windows are Windex clean too, sprayed and wiped with wads of inessential news. If you peer deep into the liquid shadows, careful to avoid stirring the surface, you might see a figure rising, as if to take a breath of what's beyond, looking out at you above a sill of potted violets. Was she the person you might love? She's gone, and even as I call up the town for you, I feel it darken, sundown. A dog is in the distance barking and barking, as if aware that we'd been there, just passing through, leaving no more than a scent on the wind where no one was or seemed to be. And there's a town somewhere by Ted Couser from the uh, new Pushcart anthology, which I recommend everybody pick up. There's um, wonderful short stories as well as poetry in there and nonfiction too. So um, do pick, out, pick up the uh, Pushcart Prize anthology. I'm sure with uh, bookstores being uh, in trouble these days, they might be having uh, sales trouble. So go to their website and uh, pick up a copy of the Pushcart Prize. 
anthology. And of course, Ted Kuzer was the poet laureate of the United States back in, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. Um, he won the Pulitzer Prize for, um, oh, Delights and Shadows, and um, among many other great, great books. And we interviewed him in Rattle Number 30. So uh, check out any of that if you would. Now, uh, this week's guest, as I mentioned, is David Mason. And um, David um, was born in Colorado. He's um, been all over the world, really. Um, he's, his two poems in the current issue of Rattle, and he has a book, The Sound, New and Selected, from Red Hand Press, and a forthcoming manuscript, Pacific Light, among many other books. Um, he's won just too many prizes to name. I'm not even going to bother with all this stuff, but uh, here he is. Uh, David Mason. Hey, David, how are you doing today? I'm well, Tim. It's great to see you. Welcome to Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful to see you. Do you want to start us out with a, with a poem, just to get things going? Yeah, sure. I'm going to give you a, a little uh, welcoming poem. It's the first poem from a, a book called Sea Salt. It's called Kefi. Every meal a communion. The uninvited dead are here. Do they miss the taste of wine or the flickering glare of the candle in the window? I remember some of their names. Their appetites are hollow. They crowd like moths to the flame, but the poor things cannot burn. Lightheaded in this company, I look at them all in turn. The Greeks would call this kephi, ineffable, weightless, tuned to the conversations of the night with or without a moon. Ah, everything's all right. It's kefi. Coffee would wreck it, or too much wine. But a song, if we can remember it, will carry us along. Yeah, I love that poem, and that last line especially, a song, if we can remember it, will carry us along. Um, And of course, you know, songs you know, carry you along and carry us all along as, as fans of poetry. Um, I'm, I'm curious about, about your, your life and how you, you started in poetry. I, you know, you, um, you grew up in Colorado, but then left and went to Alaska and were, was a, um, a fishing, a fisherman there on a, yeah. one of those boats out in the ocean, I imagine. Right. Yeah. Well, actually it's a little bit different in that I was actually born in Washington oh. state which is uh, 40 odd degrees north latitude. Mm-hmm. And now I live in Tasmania, which is 40 odd degrees south latitude. So there's a rhyme in my life uh, between north and south, between the two hemispheres. Where I grew up in Bellingham, Washington, under the Canadian border, both my parents were from Colorado. So the, the Colorado connection goes back quite a ways. But I grew up with a kind of international focus, a border focus. And uh, I, I never felt naturally an American. I always felt something of a of an internationalist. I had deep roots in Colorado, deep roots in the American West, but the the Northwest where I grew up was very much culturally aligned and geopolitically aligned with Japan and Asia. And it was perfectly natural for a kid in uh, in my circumstances to spend time in Alaska fishing and doing other things. And uh, so all of these things are connected. I'm descended from Scottish immigrants, coal miners, et cetera, and I've written a lot about that. Um, and that's why I think uh, the British Isles and Scotland mean a lot to me. I lived in Greece for some years and speak Greek and love the Greek people and the Greek language 
And so that's been a huge part of my life. And all of these things foster literary connections, foster the way I understand English. And, uh, and they're all here in Tasmania as well. So what, what is it do you think? I always think of your poems as sort of poems of place almost, because there's sort of a sense of like, um, you know, I'm in this body inhabiting this space that has a history and, um, yeah. and it stretches back, you know, and I'm connected to it. I'm not like apart from it. Yeah. And that's sort of what yeah. I get, that sense of, of being connected through your poems. Yeah. And, um, but you go from place to place, though. You don't stay rooted in one place, it seems. Um, but why yeah. do you think that is? Like, yeah. what, what is your, well, what are you like seeking? Because there must be a seeking there, right? Well, yeah, there's a bit of accident rolled into it, too. But, um, you know, you're putting your finger on the essential paradox of my life, I think, in that. I'm very much a poet of place, very much a poet of weather, seasons, location, language. Uh, but I'm also a poet of deracination, rootlessness, vagabondage, immigration, etc. The verse novel I published, Ludlow, is about immigrants, some of whom have this strange feeling that they don't even really exist, that their language is unreal, that their identity is double, that they're more than one thing. I've never in my life ever felt that identity was one thing, a knowable, solid thing. It always felt fluid to me. It always felt like something in motion. Now, you can think of all that wandering and that movement as a kind of uh, purgatorial aspect to my life, but I don't think of it that way. Um, I, have, I seem to be somebody who feels at home wherever he is, and uh, uh, that's a great gift from my point of view. Right now, I'm enjoying a life where I'm not moving at all, and I look forward to not ever moving again, if I can possibly swing it. I feel deeply rooted here. I love this place, and it mirrors, in a way, the place where I grew up. And uh, so I'm, I'm damn lucky to have a, a place where I can nest at last, where I can alight at last. And, and what is what is Tasmania like? I've never, you know, it's the, the island, you know, on the, at the southeastern tip of uh, Australia. We know that there's Tam Tasmanian devils that's still in the, the Tasmanian tiger that went extinct. Yeah, well, uh, Tasmanian tiger is <laughs> quite possibly extinct. Mm -hmm. uh, the devil we have and we have them on this on this land. We can hear them screaming sometimes at, at night. They're a small wild marsupial. Um, and uh, we have lots of uh, wallabies and patty melons and echidnas. We have an incredibly, incredible array of birds from black cockatoos to kookaburras to fairy wrens and all kinds of things. Herons like to come to the, the little dam of, of the pond on our property here. It's a cloudy day today, so you can't see that there are actually some pretty good mountains across in World Heritage Wilderness mm -hmm. immediately west of us. We're looking across the Hewen River estuary. And just behind me, behind that curtain in the back there, is the Southern Ocean. Next stop, Antarctica. <laughs> um, so this is an island. It's a heart-shaped island. In fact, I'll read you a poem about it, okay? Yeah, sure. This is from, from my new manuscript. It's called The Air in Tasmania. Do you happen to know what page it's on? So I can... Uh... Well, it's it's from the, uh, the Xerox ah, handout okay. that I gave you. It's the second... One in okay, the group. I've got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This green heart, afloat in Earth's more watery half, bears, like everywhere else, its lacerations. 
But the land takes flying lessons from the air, and the air's great cleanser, the sea. That cry in the near dark has yet to be identified. Open the window and listen. It comes to us like the earliest memory when we lay with no name at creation. But the world is not dew-wet and new. The continents are islands, too, dividing like cells in a microscope. Between here and Patagonia, titanic volumes of air, the walls and currents cover the distances known to the whales and migrating birds. We share it with bush, the lizards, the fish, the green rosellas coasting up to a limb, from person to bird and back to a person writing late at night when the light of extinguished stars having crossed an even vaster sea can still be seen winking in the same abundance we are given to breathe. Uh, thanks so much. And that is uh, The Air in Tasmania from uh, your forthcoming yeah. manuscript, Pacific Light. Um, and that's a beautiful poem. Um, and one of the things that I find interesting about you is that you're one of the poets who talk about beauty still, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and the importance yeah. of, like, what is the importance of beauty to you in, in, in the pursuit of poetry? Um, it's everything. It's everything, really. I mean, you know, I also write about violence and death and historical tragedy and all this stuff. But none of that really has meaning without beauty. And beauty has its meaning because of all that other stuff, the violence uh, uh, and all that, um, and, uh, and, and death. Uh, there's a lot of death in my life. I've known a lot of death, a lot of tra tragedy, a lot of suffering, madness, addiction in my family, all sorts of stuff like that. Everybody's got their problems, right? Uh, but I don't want to just belabor that stuff. I want to see if I can understand that it's a it's a bloody privilege to be alive on this planet, to be able to walk, to see, to feel things, to touch things, to be able to love is an unbelievable gift and privilege. Uh, and I want to try to convey some of that. I, I wrote an opera libretto that's, uh, you know, the, the recording is, is out now from Naxos. It's called The Parting. And it's about the most awful thing in the world, right? The Holocaust. It's about the death of the Hungarian poet Miklos Radnoti. And there's a dialogue between Radnoti and death in that libretto, in which Radnoti is saying, why do I live? Why am I alive? And death's answer is, to learn about love, to love, to make beautiful things, to die. And that's it for me. That is it. I feel like I'm facing my death every day. I'm living with my death. I'm residing with my death. And that makes the acuteness of the beauty of this world the beauty of my wife and her poetry, the beauty of the great poems by uh, other people that I read, uh, the great literature I read, uh, the great music I listen to, uh, all the more important. Uh, and the great gift that I have, this body that can still move and dance to it, react to it, live with it, reside with it, man, uh, you know, that's what it's about.
uh, appreciating that to some extent. Um, what is the, the, you know, the connection to death? Like, have you always had that perspective? Um, one of the interesting things yeah. with Rattle is that, um, you know, people always write it and say, you know, half the poems in your issues are about death. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Um, and to me, like, I've, I've always felt that, like, um, that death is like the period on the sentence that it, nothing could exist yeah. and have meaning without an end, you know? And so, yeah. and, and that's something that we haven't really reconciled with is like human beings and a culture. Uh, we're not good at it. Like the Greeks were to no, bring up the no, Greeks. No, no, the Greeks and the Greeks still are damn good at it. You know, the Greeks, the modern Greeks bury their dead for three years and then dig up the bones and wash the bones. Oh, wow. Do that? I didn't know the that. They, wow. And wow. They, you can visit the bones of your grandmother in a, in a small Greek village. Uh, their understanding of death is powerful. And I think Americans need to learn a lot uh, from the rest of the world. Americans can be so blinkered about this stuff. We live in a, in a country, or I used to live in a country, that's full of this notion that somehow or another my individual success is somehow or another so transcendent that it will transcend death. That's nonsense, utter nonsense. Now, you know, then there's, there's Yeats saying, many times man lives and dies between his two eternities. I have died many times. I have lived through experiences that I thought would kill me, that I thought I could not possibly survive. And here I am. I've come through the fire. I've lived. Uh, I've survived this far and I will die and maybe it will be painful and maybe it won't be painful. Uh, but is that a period on the end of life? I'm not conventionally religious, but I know that uh, I will be the grass. I will be the air. I will be the trees. I will be somehow or another a part of this, of this earth, of this life again. Keats talks about dying into life. Now, he's only at 25, he's like 21 when he writes that in one of his longer poems. He understands that there's some kind of anguish we have to go through in order to live fully. Uh, we have to dance the tragedy as well as the comedy. Uh, they, they, the two masks of Greek theater really do have their meaning in relation to each other, don't they? In any case... I think the denial of death is just ridiculous. I had a brother who died at 28, and my biggest regret for him is that he didn't get more years um, in which to understand things. I just read the new, great, big new biography of Sylvia Plath. She died at 30. Imagine what she could have done if she'd lived as long as Louise Glick, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, Plath wrote these great flower poems before Louise Glick's great flower poems, you know? Uh, maybe Plath would win the Nobel Prize. Um, I could wish that Seamus Heaney lived longer. He was 74, you know. Um, but the thing is, in the time that we are given, whatever time it is, 10 years or 80 years, to make the most we can out of what we are given, out of the gifts we are given, that is what life is for. And then... You know, the rest is out of our hands. Is that what draws you to poetry in general? Like, a, you know, in early on, too, that, um, you know, poetry is, a, is sort of the act of noticing life is another way to, to think yeah. of poetry and, and to appreciate. Yeah. And um, is, is that the thing? Like, like when you were, 
um, young, uh, you know, fishing, uh, you know, and then hitchhiking across uh, you know, the, the Canadian yeah. West. Um, is that what drew you to poetry even then? Um, that was the... Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was in the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, these bare-backed, treeless islands, I was on a ship anchored off the island, and then we sailed to Kodiak and worked there. I used to wander off alone into the hills and I would sing Shakespeare songs to myself when nobody else could hear me, right? When I was working as a gardener in upstate New York, I would be raking five acres of leaves and then hauling them behind a tractor out to a, a composting area. I would be singing W.H. Auden, the tunes I made up in my head, uh, when nobody could hear my voice because the tractor noise would drown it out, right? That kind of music has been in my body all my life. Just yesterday, my wife showed me a little film of a three-year-old boy who's the son of dear, dear friends of ours, uh, whose father is reading to him from the Oxford Rhyming Dictionary. And that little boy is rocking back and forth on his knees and laughing giddily. He's laughing ecstatically at the sound of those rhymes. Now, here's the question. Why do some people lose that joy? What the hell happens you know, what happens to us and how can we get it back? I think that to a very great degree, poets are people who want to get that joy back, that fundamental appreciation of song and sound and meaning and dance and all of it, you know, um, which makes us a bit nutty to some other people, right? You know, we don't seem like the most stable people in the world. I feel perfectly stable myself, but I, some friends of mine have not always thought I was so stable. You know, some members of my family have not always thought I was so stable. So, you know, what is it to be devoted to this thing? And, and why um, do we um, why do we forget it? Like, there's that um, that uh, Cummings line I always think of, and down they forgot as up they grew. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But I love why that. is it that we lose that? Why do you think? Well, I mean, the, the simple answer is that our education beats it out of us. I think it's got to be more complex than that. I mean, hormones crash into us, you know, and then the ego is ascendant for quite a few years. And it's pretty hard to find a human being who can transcend his or her ego pain between the ages of about 12 and the ages of about 40. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know... There's a, lot to, there's a lot to fight against. And, of course, there's practicality, right? You've got to make a living. Remember the song by Guy Clark, There Ain't No Money in Poetry, and that's what sets the poet free. I've had all the freedom I can stand. It's cold dog soup and rainbow pie, uh, something, something enough to get me by. Uh, fill my belly till the day I die with cold dog soup and rainbow pie. Well, yeah. Uh, for the most part, there ain't no money in poetry, but that's what sets the poet free. Uh, and a lot of people out there preaching freedom in America have got no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great, great way to put it. I think um, I always think of, um, for some reason, one thing about that, I think of um, Adam and Eve, you know, suddenly realizing they're naked. I think that's what happens with to people at around twelve or thirteen. It's like, oh, I, I can't yeah. express myself nakedly. I'm vulnerable. Um, and then there goes poetry, I think, for the most part. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let, yeah. Let's keep going with some more poems. But I should say yeah. before we do, yeah. um, if anybody has any questions for David Mason, um, just leave them in the chat windows. I'm watching YouTube and uh, Facebook, but not Twitter or Periscope. I can only have so many windows and, and videos up at a time. 
But uh, if you uh, want to ask a question for David, especially YouTube, find uh, the YouTube chat window and leave it leave it a question there, and I'll pass it along. But uh, but what should we read next, Dave? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a poem from the Sound uh, called "Driving with Marley." It's on page 81, uh, and this is um, this is based on a, an event in which uh, a little three-year-old granddaughter asked me a question. Since we're on the topic of three-year-olds not losing the love of poetry, driving with Marley. Grandpa, do you live in the sky? No, but I live on a mountain and came on a plane to see you. Why? All leaping thought and ruminant pool. A three-year-old is a verbal fountain, water clear enough to see through. Anything can fool the wizard in the front seat of the car. How far will we go, Grandpa? How far? Little one, I must relearn all subjects such as distances. Study the foolishness and burn like candlelight to worry less and less about the night. It's not that youth is always right, but that an aging man is too preoccupied with plans. I do live in the sky, but I do not know why. Yeah, that was a wonderful poem uh, from The Sound that was um, uh, Driving with Marley. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, David. Huh. And, and um, I don't know, it's just it's the... The sort of the, the, the gravity and um, the truth in your work always stands out, too. Um, one thing I wonder about, um, my introduction to you, so, so my history, just as a reader, I um, uh, randomly picked up Mark Jarman's Unholy Sonnets, which, um, which I never, you know, I was just a science major um, in a, at University of Rochester, where you went, actually. Oh, for yeah, God's yeah. sake. Amazing. Uh, I bet we know some of the same people. We have to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we probably do. Yeah. yeah. And, and even um, yeah. You, you mentioned gardening in Rochester. I was doing the same thing. Yeah. I worked a summer job uh, for two years doing landscaping. So I would be like reciting poems on my tractor too. Yeah. Exactly. I, Drowning listen, out. I was, yeah. I, I was the harbor master of the Rochester, New York Yacht Club <laughs> oh, wow. for two of the summers when I was getting my PhD there. <laughs> it was quite something. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so. Um, but then after that, I read um, Rebel Angels, which was just a wonderful book yeah. that you did with Mark Jarman um, for New Formalist yeah. Poets back in like 96, I think it was. And then I kind yeah. of, to be honest, forgot about you until uh, yeah. until yeah. I read Ludlow, um, which, which is such an amazing book about the Ludlow Massacre um, and, and such a political topic, too, which is um, kind of different in a way than your other work. Um, yeah. So so do you want to just explain what Ludlow was? I mean, you know, it was sure. this... Well, why don't you explain it? You can explain it better than me. Sure. Well, one thing is I've written narrative and dramatic poems all my life. So poems in the voices of other characters, etc. cetera. Uh, and I'm even writing a prose novel right now. So who knows what, what's coming of that. Um, Ludlow is an event my parents told me about when I was a kid visiting relatives in Colorado. Uh, it's an event when uh, there was a strike of immigrant coal miners in southern Colorado the National Guard was called in. A long, protracted sort of war uh, took place, uh, culminating on April, 4th, April 20th, 1914, 
when um, a handful of uh, men, women, and children were massacred by the, uh, by the National Guard. Um, so yeah, I wrote a, a verse novel about that. And uh, very proud of the book. Um, uh, Hayden Carruth once wrote me and said, you got to write more of these. You got to write more of these, these verse novels, you know. And maybe I will someday. Um, I've written shorter narratives as well. Um, but uh, this is another aspect of poetry that I think is important. And really everything I write, I'm, I'm even finishing a book of essays now, literary critical essays, in which I say that what I'm always doing is I'm storytelling. Um, and uh, even in lyric poetry, I think to some degree I'm storytelling. Remember that the, the mother of the muses is memory. Remember that one of the jobs of the poet is to help us remember who we are. Remember that Plato says that learning is remembering, so that somehow or another we are trying to, as you said, connect. We are trying to get in touch with that realness in ourselves and in our lives and in the world around us. So uh, Ludlow is an act of remembering. It's an act of remembrance. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of my opera work is the same thing, historical stuff. So. Um, yeah, there's two things I always wondered about Ludlow, and, and the first is, um, um, like, like why uh, write it as a verse novel? You know, because you can reach yeah. such a larger audience in prose. Um, yeah, you know, it's true. Um, and and so the choice. Although, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> although I was talking to, uh, I remember being in an AWP. And talking to Mark Cull at Red Hen Press about how well Ludlow was selling. I think it was their best book, you know, for in years yeah. in, in that span. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that that a, a poem that has a long narrative or a book that has a long narrative was was their best selling book. That was always interesting to me. But but I always wondered though, why you know what what do you think that it gains being said in prose, like sung like that, versus um, in, in poetry? A lot about. Prose? And there's an afterword to the book that, that raises the same question you're raising and tries to deal with it. Um, I recommend the afterword to anybody who's interested. Basically, uh, there's a lot of stuff that can be said. One thing that can be said is that there are lots of ways to tell stories and that, in fact, verse is a lot more like cinema. If you think of cinema as a string of images, montage of images, verse works that way. So ballads tell stories where uh, uh, in moving from one stanza to another, I don't have to explain or give a lot of information that a prose writer might be tempted to give. All I have to do is move to the next verse or move to the next line. Another thing I can do is I can sort of channel the verbal and narrative energies of a story by using meter. Uh, in Ludlow, it's mostly blank verse, a little bit of rhyme, a little bit of a foray into hexameter, a little dose of prose at one point. So when the book begins, it begins with uh, shot firers filed in after the diggers left and found the marked drills for their measured shot. As daylight died, the men were blasting deep for the next day's cuts of coal, while down below the mesas, smells of cooking rose from shacks in rows. And there Louisa scrubbed the pot as if she were some miner's wife and not a sapper's daughter, scrawny, barely 12. Now that's just, I'm just moving into the opening. I'm finding my meter. I'm finding the, the measure of the line I'm going to use. 
Um, it finally only becomes a regular iambic line in about line three. As, day, as daylight died, the men were blasting deep, right? Uh, before that, I'm just charging the language. I'm packing it in. I'm not explaining all my terminology to you like shot firers and sappers. I'm suggesting that my audience can just feel this texture of a life, of a world, of a universe in which the action happens. And I'm introducing you to this little girl who becomes the heart of the book because she feels torn between the immigrants among whom she grows up and the more settled business class folks with whom she comes to live as the book goes on. That tension in her life and the tension in the life of a historical character, a Greek immigrant, are the found foundations, the narrative foundations of the book for me. So yeah, what can, why tell it in verse? Well, uh, a friend of mine, Scott Martell, who used to write, and I think does again write for the Los Angeles Times, wrote a prose book, and his prose book came out soon after my verse book, and Scott and I have often shared the stage together to talk about Ludlow. It's very interesting that both of our books have failed pretty much, fared pretty much equally well out there in the world of, of book sales and storytelling. There's an issue in America, which is that the destructiveness of commentary, of political commentary, tends to make some people reject the book as if it were pure lefty politics, pure pro-immigrant, pro-minor, pro-union and all that, which is a big oversimplification of the book. I think the book has a texture of reality that doesn't make angels out of anybody. Um, I don't believe that human beings are angels. I wouldn't be interested in them if they were. Um, and uh, so uh, I don't think it's a politically simplistic book. It is, however, an angry book. It's very angry about power and about people who misuse power. And I, I feel a lot of that anger. And anger comes out even in some poems in my, my new book, Pacific Light. Yeah, well, it's, it's such an amazing book. It's one of my favorite. And I recommend everybody at home pick it up. I love that what you said about I never, you know, working uh, in poetry full time for like 15 or yeah. 17 years. Yeah. I've never thought of it as a film strip, you know, a strip of movie film oh, yeah. with each line being yeah. like a frame. But that isn't a really cool way to think about it. And um, it was actually a filmmaker gave me that oh, image, wow. yeah. a guy named Larry, Larry Bridges, who lives uh, in Palace, Pacific Palisades and is a film editor. He's the guy who many years ago, when I was working briefly in the film business, he's the guy who, uh, who gave me that idea. Uh, it's never left me. It's a good image. Yeah, yeah. it really is. It's, it's really awesome the way it you know, rolls up the page. It's so cool. Um, and you kind of touched a little bit about what I also wanted to ask about, which is that to me, the poem ends up being very, or the, the book, the, the novel in verse, ends up being very political without being falling into the political trap. Like we do Poets Respond um, where we have poems about current events every, you know, every week. And um, there's sort of this trap where you're sort of projecting your political opinions rather than yeah. sort of exploring them. And um, yeah. can you just say a little bit about like, like how you do political poetry? Like, like yeah. it, it's such a difficult thing to do. I remember talking to um, um, Troy Jollymore and he was saying that political yeah. poetry is impossible because um, yeah. Yeah. if you have political opinion, then you have a p opinion and you can't write a poem with a pre-subscribed opinion. And um, yeah. so, so how do you get over those hurdles and, and sort of be political as a poet? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it is difficult. Uh, this is the subject of my new book of essays. 
which I think will be out next year from Paul Dry Books. I'm just actually putting the finishing touches on it right now. The book is called Incarnation and Metamorphosis, Can Poetry Change Us? Um, And essay after essay is about this difficult position. Um, I, I do believe poetry can change us. But I believe there's a difference between political change and, uh, and the kind of change that we go through in life and, and in art. Uh, there are great political poems. Yeats's Easter 1916, Auden's September 1st, 1939. Auden's The Shield of Achilles, really, is a very great political poem that never simplistically states um, what the author's point of view is. Instead, it makes you feel the absolute grief of historical madness, warfare, and the the Holocaust, uh, and what modern warfare does to people. Um, All anti-war poetry is political poetry, and all war poetry is anti-war poetry. Homer is a political poet. But Homer also pulls us into... um, the, the other emotions we feel in warfare, uh, glory, ecstasy, madness, uh, all sorts of things, um, and rage, right? All these different things. Grief, 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 grief. You know, when Priam and, and, uh, and Achilles are facing each other, weeping for their dead, there's nothing more moving in all of literature. Well, that's political in the very best sense. Um, and... Uh, And, uh, you know, I I have been asked myself to write for political occasions. I'll give you a little tiny poem. I I was asked to write um, uh, for the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act and uh, when I was Poet Laureate of Colorado. And I wrote a little poem. It's not in in the groups you have. It's in the sound. Maybe I'll find the page here and and be able to tell you what page it is. Uh, But here's how it goes. It's called Saying Grace. It's on page 31. Okay. So my job is to write about the Wilderness Act. The first thing I do is I question the idea of what wilderness is. Okay? If every moment is and is a wilderness to navigate by feel, whether half or whole, the river takes a turn, the forest has to burn, the broken fern to grow, the silence of a night of supplicating stars may answer us aright. Our worries and our cares are not the same as theirs. Give us this day more world than we can ever know. Excellent. Now, take, take the, uh, you know, the phenomenon of, of, of the wildfires in the West, which I have some experience of. And it's, it's our deepest fear in Tasmania and the deepest fear on the mainland of Australia, obviously. Um, you know, Trump will come over and say, well, this is because you didn't rake up the woods. Somebody else will come and say, hey, this is federal land. You're the guy who's supposed to be managing this stuff better. Somebody else will say, yeah, but too many people are living in the woods and not taking care of their land. I'm going to a workshop with an Aboriginal teacher this coming weekend where I'm going to learn about uh, fire prevention on my land from the Aboriginal point of view. The Aboriginal people 
kept this land as a kind of parkland and prevented it from being a dense jungle that would that would burn too easily. In any case, my poem doesn't do that. My poem just says, look, fire is natural. Fire is life. It's real. It's going to happen. <clears throat> the broken fern can grow again, right? I also say in a sort of prayer at the end of the poem, give us this day more world than we can ever know. Now, the simplistic, self-righteous, egotistical political poem will say, I know the world, I know the truth, I know what's right, I know what justice is, and you don't. I don't do that, and I will never do that. I will never do that. I do that when I go into the voting booth, but that's not interesting as art. What's interesting as art is to be pulled into the problem that we experience, the tragedy, the pain, the grief of it, uh, and to feel it more intensely as the problem it is. Guess what? Our prayers have been answered. We do have more world than we can ever know. Um, this is a great gift. This is a great, great, great gift. Um, good political poetry will also teach us humility in the face of the political problem. The sense that we need grace, we need help, and we need to be kindness, and we need to be kind to others. Um, and we need to try to meet each other in whatever terms we can find to meet each other. We don't have much time, you know, in this life. Poetry's always telling us this. And the best political poetry is telling us the same thing. Yeah, I always think of, um, it's not poetry, but The Jungle by, you know, Upton Sinclair yeah. is, is the sort of example of how it's, it's not poetry, but, but embodying lived experience and then having more empathy is how poetry really functions politically, I think, rather than yep. the whole, um, you know, rhetorical, um, you know, propaganda, which poetry can become sure. very often if you're not sure. um, not very, sure. very conscious of that. Um, I'm, I'm sure. doing this thing, which I do with poets that I really like and have read a lot, where I'm not giving you enough um, reading time. I want more poems. Everybody needs more poems. So um, what do you want to read next? And then we'll get to some uh, audience questions, too. I'll do, uh, I'll do uh, one more from the sound uh, and I can turn to the new book, too. I'll do one called Fathers and Sons. Um, it's on page 78. Okay, thanks. Totally personal, totally real, totally true. It just flat out happened to me. Uh, when I wrote this poem, I felt scared by it. I thought people would hate it. Uh, and it turns out people don't hate it. Some things they say one should not write about. I tried to help my father comprehend the toilet, how one needs to undo one's belt to slide one's trousers down and sit. But he stubbornly stood and would not bend his knees. I tried again to bend him toward the seat and then I laughed at the absurdity. Fathers and sons, how he had wiped my bottom half a century ago, and how I would repay the favor if he would only sit. Don't you? He gripped me, trembling, searching for my eyes. Don't you? But 
the word was lost to him. Somewhere a man of dignity would not be laughed at. He could not see it was only the crazy dance that made me laugh, trying to make him sit when he wanted to stand. Just a wonderful poem. That was uh, Fathers and Sons. And, and I um, haven't find, found a way to um, put your face on the screen as you read without it being too big. Ah. The, the dimensions are wrong. But, ah. but you memorize your poems, which I noticed. Um, and not many people do. Um, yeah, I, I usually, I don't have all of them memorized. Like some of this new stuff I don't have down yet. But uh, I prefer to have it that way. And uh, it just feels like I can, I can then improvise, change the way I perform it each time, don't have to do the same way all the time. What I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm just trying to speak like a human being, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to do poetry voice. Um, and I don't always make it work, but uh, the best performer I ever saw was a friend of mine who died at the age of 50, the great poet Michael Dunahy. Mm. Uh, he always worked from memory, and he would just leap up on a stage, and the poem would happen as if he was making it up in that instant. If I could perform like Michael, that would be, that would be the way to do it. Uh, but I try my best. You know. Yeah, I found that that um, I kind of memorize poems by accident uh, while I'm writing yeah. them, and then you sort of just know them. Yeah. And then there's that weird thing where you um, almost know it, but then you're worried yeah. the whole time that you might forget a line or misplace. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. it was, there's a refrain I'll like skip eight whole stanzas. <laughs> <laughs> because I, yeah. 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 But um, yeah. anyway, so let's move on to some audience questions. So Josh Williams um, on Facebook asks if, um, it's an interesting question. Do you think all poems um, in some way are formal poems, that there must be a structure in whatever way in which a poem operates? What makes a poem work for you? Where do you think poetry is headed? So there's a lot of questions there. So, so dig in. A lot of questions <laughs> in an odd way. They're deeply related um, because poetry's, only headed somewhere good uh, if uh, poets uh, learn their trade. So, of course, I believe in the traditional poetic forms, and I love them, and I use them. Sometimes I'll use them in nonce ways, which means I adapt them to my own purposes. Um, but I believe every good poem, free verse, prose, whatever, is a formal artifact. Um, and form can take many forms. Um, I'm reading the, uh, the marvelous new book of essays by Kay Ryan, Synthesizing Gravity. I recommend it to everybody. And that reminds me that Kay Ryan's poetry, which I think is as distinctive as the poetry of anybody writing in English right now, uh, is mostly a kind of rhymed free verse. And it feels like intensely formal stuff uh, because it's, in a way, the, the turning of her own mind as it responds to the world. So in that sense, it's every bit as formal as Emily Dickinson, to whom she's often com you know, compared. She probably hates that comparison by now, but the comparison is there because they both wrote short poems and they're both women, but I don't know what else you can say. Um, but, uh, you know, th that's formality. Um, there's formality in a really good prose poem. I find good prose poems are a little bit rare for me, but, uh, but they exist, you know. Um, and when poetry bores me, and I will be honest with all of you and just say, most poetry I read 
bores me to tears. Uh, it's because the poet um, is simply reporting uh, the facts of the case as they occurred and not trying to do something with language in the course of, of doing it. So, you know, I read poems from magazines. I'm, a, I'm an editor, etc. And I will often say that this would not interest me if it was prose. Uh, prose writers have to be more interesting than this. What are you doing? Why are you saying, today I got up and drank my first cup of coffee? Why is that interesting? Why is that an opening for a poem? It's not an opening for a poem. Um, you know, a, a, a great opening um, might be a, like a line from a poem by my wife. He fired through the dog's head, had to. Hmm. That's an opening line from a poem. That could be the opening line of a novel, right? That could be the opening line of anything, but it's a great opening line. He fired through the dog's head, had to. Um, the language is compressed, it's pul pulsing, and it's also pulling you right into a situation. Every poem is a situation. It's a room of, of language. Uh, and you've got to make me want to go in there. You've got to make me want to open that door and, and, and read further. Um, and uh, so you have a job to do as a poet, right? So in, in terms of where poetry is going, I think uh, maybe it's always been true that there's just too much poetry out there that's not doing the job, that's not doing the work that poets need to do. Uh, whether it's what we call free verse, I don't believe free verse exists. I think Eliot is right when he says there's no such thing as free verse. There's only good verse, bad verse, and chaos. Um, and uh, uh, you've got to make that thing um, a matter of verbal interest and intensity and uh, attitude and vitality um, uh, the kind of lucidity that would pull me into opacity and make me care about it. Um, so uh, there's a lot to be done by any good poem. Uh, and mainly what I'm trying to cut from my own stuff is information, uh, the prosaic uh, explanation. As the great Australian poet Les Murray said, nothing's free when it's explained. Think about that. Nothing's free when it's explained. Even writing literary criticism, you don't want to explain too much. You don't want to say too much. You know, you want to leave a little room in there. You want to trust the reader to find his or her own way through it. So that's a lot. That's a mouthful. But all of those questions are related. They are related. Yeah, that's great. Would this even be interesting in prose? I think, you know, for reading submissions from a literary magazine, that is a question that uh, I, I didn't realize, but I do ask myself all the time. Yeah. Um, on a similar kind of vein, Michelle Pfeiffer, or, or Pfeiffer over on uh, Facebook asks, uh, what advice do you have on perfecting the skills of imagery, uh, showing in a poem rather than coming right out and saying it? So that's kind of related, but but yeah. Yeah, um, you know, read the best makers of images you, uh, uh, Tim, read a marvelous poem by Ted Couser when you started this program. Ted's an old friend of mine, and man, oh man, he, he is a po poet of the image, of the metaphor, and he is a painter as well, and that really comes across in his poems. Read Ted Couser till the books fall apart. Read Philip Larkin 
you'll notice that Larkin writes about utterly ordinary life in a way that uh, makes it seem as if it's infused with Godhead. Uh, there's just something extraordinary about the way he makes the most ordinary image come across. Uh, really, really look. Uh, and notice the, the way you're using phrases. Phrases are where you get into trouble. George Orwell says this, you know, that when you're writing in phrases instead of in words, you're going to fall into cliché. So when you look at a, at, an, at a modifier noun phrase or a modifier verb phrase, chances are you're going to be writing a cliché. So take a look at that phrase, circle it. How can I change the modifier? How can I change the noun? Or can I get rid of one or the other of them, right? Or can I get rid of the whole thing? Um, so, you know, you got to look at the, at the language, but also look at the world. I was sitting on a riverbank yesterday uh, watching these little crabs come up out of the mud. And, and I stood up to look at them, and they all just vroom, vanished into the mud. And then I sat down again. And after a little while, they came out of their holes again. And what were they doing? They were pecking at the mud with the picks of their legs. Okay, now that's an image that just came to my head, that their legs were like picks picking at the river mud, right? Um, and, and I'm just trying to say what I saw there. I stood up again, and the crabs vanished into their holes. That's incredible. It means they noticed me. I think I'm the one who's important seeing them. It turns out they're seeing me, right? Or sensing me or whatever the hell it is. That means that seeing is being seen. Uh, what's looking back at you? How are we being seen as well as how we're seeing? What would happen if you could write from the point of view of the image you're trying to write about? You know, uh, Lots and lots of ways of, of turning that around. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear another poem and then we'll move on to some questions from uh, YouTube. But uh, what, what do you want to read next? I think I'll read, uh, uh, I'll read the very little poem that's in your current issue, Note to Self. Uh, I was finishing my teaching career in Colorado last, uh, what would have been winter in Colorado, summer here in Tasmania. Uh, and I had a pad in my little, a notepad here in my, in my little apartment that literally said note to self on the top of it. And I wrote this poem on that notepad. Uh, to be old and not to feel it is a gift. To, to be supplanted and not to care. So be it. The birds are not supplanted by the air. The air, what's left of it, by flood or fire. The effort of a life. The wasted hour. The kind word given to a stranger's child are understood as kin and disappear. Time to be grass again. Ongoing. Wild. Yeah, time to be grass again. That was Note to Self uh, from the current issue of Rattle, number 69. Thanks for reading that, David. Um, um, let, let me see. Let's go over to um, YouTube and look at some of the questions. So, Wendy Vitalik, I don't know what this means, actually. 
Um, Wendy. Yeah, we should have Wendy, another Colorado poet, but we really should Absolutely. have Wendy as a guest soon. Yeah. Um, Wendy, I, we got to get you on. Um, so she asks um, if you could give us a little of the collector's tale. Ho, 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 Wendy. Oh, God, Wendy, <laughs> you're asking a lot. Um, this is a very dark narrative poem that you can find in the, uh, in the sound. It's on page 131. Uh, I'm just going to read a small, a small bit of the opening. Um, it's in two voices. And one of them is a, is a, a man I've always imagined was gay, a, a shopkeeper in the, in the Twin Cities, uh, whose life is broken into, disturbed by a man who's based on a guy I knew. In this case, the guy I knew is uh, drunk. He's also a Native American, which you, you might consider a, has the danger of being a cliche, um, but, uh, uh, but I think he's very much actualized and very angry. And he is going to tell a story, so it's a story within a story, uh, that will change their lives. Um, so I'm just, I'm, I'm not even going to get into the second voice. The poem's too long for that. Uh, I'll just read a little bit of the opening. When it was over, I sat down last night, shaken and quite afraid I'd lost my mind. The objects I have loved surrounded me like friends in such composed society. They almost rid the atmosphere of fright. I collected them, perhaps, as one inclined to suffer other people stoically. That's why when I found Foley at my door, not my shop, but here at my private home, the smell of bourbon for his calling card, I sighed and let him in without a word. I'd only let, met the man two months before and found his taste as tacky as they come, his Indian ethic perfectly absurd. The auction house in St. Paul where we met was full that day of cherry furniture. I still can't tell you why he'd chosen me to lecture all about his Cherokee obsessions, but I listened. That I regret. My patience with a stranger's genitor, geniture compelled him to disturb my family tree. He told me of his youth in Oklahoma, his white father who steered clear of the res, a grandma native healer who knew herbs for every illness. Nothing like the burbs, I guess. He learned to tell a real tomahawk from a handsaw or lift his half-mad gaze and entertain you with some acid barbs. So he collected Indian artifacts, the sort that sell for thousands in New York. Beadwork, war shirts, arrowheads, shards of clay beloved by dealers down in Santa Fe. He lived to corner strangers, read them tracts of his invention on the careful work he would preserve and pridefully display. Foley roamed the Great Plains in his van, his thin hair tied back in a ponytail, and people learned that he was smart enough to deal. He made a living off this stuff, became a more authenticated man. But when he drank, he would begin to rail against the white world's trivializing fluff. I think I'll just stop there. I, I goofed, flubbed some lines, etc. Um, but what happens in the story, this is a story a man told me about 
the most horrifying thing he had seen in a, in a lifetime of collecting. It's a terrible artifact. It's an artifact that goes to the heart of the darkness that is America, uh, the darkness of racism um, that is uh, there uh, at the birth of the nation and that is festering like an open wound in America now. It's a darkness in Australia too, but I think America has an even more difficult uh, case of it and uh, is less mature as a country in the way it tries to deal with it. Mm. Australia is doing a better job of, uh, despite all the problems and all the lapses of trying to recognize and acknowledge um, what this is. Uh, I'm living in a place where they used to say that all Aboriginal people had been wiped out. They no longer say that. It's a much more difficult, uh, complex history uh, than they suppose. And uh, the presence, the Aboriginal presence here uh, in the bush um, is very powerful and very strong. I felt the same in America all my life. I felt ashamed that in Colorado, the reservation was pushed off to the southern tier of the state. Most people in Colorado don't know um, the name for Pikes Peak, Tava, uh, the Ute Indian name for it. Most people in Colorado don't know um, that the land uh, around Colorado Springs was sacred to the Ute, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho. Most people in Colorado don't know about the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. It's another part of my job as a poet is to speak the stories of the tribe, to tell people, um, to, help, to help people remember. And that's what The Collector's Tale is about. It's fiction, but it's fiction that cuts into uh, the most painful racial memories in America. It's interesting that you bring that up, because I was, as I was reading, um, I think I was reading The Sound, maybe, today I was thinking about how, um, you know, I live in uh, this mountain town, and um, I don't know the original name for it. Like, we live near Mount Baldy, and um, I don't know yeah. what the, the original name for it was. Um, I don't know what our valley yeah. was called. Um, we hike yeah. all these different hikes and different canyons, and I know what they're called now, but I don't know what they're called then, even as we can see, you know, boreholes for, for um, crushing grain in the rocks as we yeah. walk by, you know. Like, we, you know, people inhabited this place, and, and we don't yeah. know um, what the names are for things, which, which well, comes up in your poems sometimes. So. Yeah, and what Americans need to remember is that those people are still there. They haven't vanished. They're there. Uh, many on reservations, uh, feeling uh, disappeared and unheard and unseen. But they're there, and they can tell you the stories. Uh, and it is incumbent on Americans to start listening, start finding out where they live. Uh, I recommend it. I recommend going out trying to, trying to talk to people and finding the stories. Um. Over on uh, on YouTube, Kat, um, Liz Winfield asks, um, sort of slightly related, um, what poets are you reading now, and how has that been affected by Australian poets since moving here? I mean, you're um, ah. <laughs> married to an Australian poet, Kelly Conan Davies, um, yeah. who I, I got to see yesterday. I think she's probably in the background somewhere. Um, I think she's in her bedroom watching this on her laptop. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, but but yeah. so yeah, we we've um, I've been meaning to do an Australian poets issue, or maybe a. Um, 
um, what's the word? Oceana or something like that. So we can include New Zealand and, and yeah. other, other island oh, places. Yeah. But, that um, would be great. Be great. But, yeah. But, but what is your experience of um, Australian poets? Like what's the, what's the. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the books propping up my laptop right now is an anthology of Australian poetry since 1788. Oh, wow. I'm going to. Wow. That's thick. <laughs> some, some friends of mine, some new friends of mine just gave me this book. Um, when I uh, became a legal uh, uh, permanent resident of Australia uh, in August. Uh, and we threw a big party here at the house. And that was one of the gifts I got. Um, I love it. Australian poetry is unbelievably rich, unbelievably rich, including Aboriginal poetry and Aboriginal writing that's happening right now. A lot of Aboriginal writing happening right now. Aboriginal drama happening right now. Aboriginal film. Uh, and television, uh, and all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, one of the greatest poets in the English-speaking world, a man who should have won the Nobel Prize, Les Murray, died just last uh, year. And uh, uh, the fact that he didn't get the Nobel Prize uh, means that the Nobel Prize is pretty much meaningless. Um, uh, he's a great, great, great writer. Uh, who can make the language do things that almost nobody else in the, the contemporary scene can do. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a, an Australian poet living in America who's a dear friend of mine, Kevin Hart, um, beautiful poet uh, who's teaching religion at the University of Virginia, is a great scholar, you know, a friend of Jacques Derrida, etc. Uh, I'll give you a little poem by my wife who is a, a genius and uh, one of the greatest poets writing right now in the world. This is a little poem she wrote in Oregon. I recite it a lot. It's called August Moon. She's thinking of a blue moon. She's looking up at the moon. And she goes, Gray-faced as worlds flow fast away, for worlds are done with every day, for minds hot-wired to the sun. Her news is blue. Her borrowed light softens the truth. The truth is night. Now, in the history of poetry on the face of the earth, no one else has ever said that. That is a remarkable little artifact. That's worthy of William Blake. And if you go to the new issue of Literary Matters, when it comes up online, you'll find two new incredibly Blakeian poems by my wife uh, on that website. She's a great, great, great writer. She makes the language come alive like nobody else. If I had her gifts, I could get the Nobel Prize. Uh, but I don't have her verbal gifts. I have to struggle along in my own, in my own stumble bum Yankee way. Well, make sure she sends some poems to us over here at Rattle, and we'll have, have to have her I'll, on, I'll too. I'll do it. She, um, she, uh, I, she is a suspicious of the publishing world, but well, I'll, well, I'll talk to her. We're a good place to publish, so tell her that. Um, I tried to pull it up, yeah. but it's under behind a paywall. So I got it, and I got excited, and then I couldn't, the August Moon poem. But... If anybody wants it, if anybody wants it, you can email me at djm1254 at gmail.com, and I'll send it to you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, let's, uh, we're, we're pretty much over time, but, but would you like to finish off with one last poem? Yeah. What should I do? Yeah. Anything um, you want. I'll tell you what, um, uh, I'll do, a, I'll do a, uh, 
I'll, I'll do a little formal poem. No, I know what I'll do. I'll do a love poem to my wife. Oh, that's perfect. This one, this one is in The Sound. Uh, it's called The Soul Fox, and it's on page 106, and it's very short. This happened in Colorado. We had a little cabin in the, my last years of teaching there. It was October 2011. Um, the great psychologist James Hillman had just died, and Chrissy just found out. Her, her publishing name is Callie Conan Davies. Uh, her real name is Chrissy. Uh, she, she just found out about Hillman. She was total, totally grief-stricken. She was also feeling very much at a loss being in America, uh, feeling like America was a country that had gone off the rails, which it is, and uh, um, wondering why she was there. And uh, we saw this fox run through the snow out, out the back window. And uh, while she was in the back room uh, having a, a bit of a cry over all these things, I was in the front room writing this poem for her, The Soul Fox. My love, the fox is in the yard. The snow will bear his print a while, then melt and go. But we who saw his way of finding out, his night of seeking, know what we have seen and are the better for it. Write, let the white page bear the mark, then melt with joy upon the dark. Excellent. That was The Soul Fox by David Mason from The Sound. Thanks so much for being a guest today, David. It, it's, uh... Jim, you, you are a wonderful, wonderful guy, and what you do is a great gift. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. And I hope, let this be the beginning of a long and beautiful friendship. Yeah, okay? yeah, definitely. I hope so. Thanks so much for being a guest, David. It's always, it's just wonderful to see you after reading your books for so many years. Thank you. Okay, my best to everybody. Cheers. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was David Mason um, reading from uh, mostly from his newest book, The Sound, which um, to put the cover up really quick. I, I didn't get a uh, physical copy in time, but there's the, the cover of The Sound, uh, his new and selected. Then he has Pacific Light, which is coming out um, soon, but not yet. And um, uh, but The Sound is from Red Hen Press. So go to redhenpress.org to find that. And um, now. Let's move on to the open mic portion of the show. Um, as always, um, I should say, we had to get rid of David. Sorry, David. Um, if, you, if you wrote a poem for the prompt this week, um, email it right now to openmic at rattle.com. All one word. That's openmic, open M-I-C, at rattle.com. Um, and then you can call in over phone, 818 that's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times, and I will call you back. Um, it, it'll appear on my call list, so that's how that kind of works. And um, Or you can send a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word, Rattle Poetry. And then I'll see that, and, and I'll call you when the time is right. That's how we get the timing right. Someone's calling right now. Uh, Brenda's calling right now, Brenda Komarinsky. Um We have a bunch of people lined up. Let's see whose poems we have. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of poems, too, so let's try to get to them. We'll get to as many as we can. Um, the prompt for this week was, oops, that's next week. We don't want next week's yet. We want this week's. This week's prompt is, 
Write a poem exploring the motivations of a mythological creature, vampire, unicorn, dragon, etc. So it's sort of a Halloweenish prompt. Write about a uh, mythological creature, something, I mean, probably creepy. Um, I decided to, since it's Halloween, write about jack-o'-lantern, which I never knew the story of, uh, you know, where that comes from. And, um, and the story is that um, Lazy Jack was a, uh, a blacksmith who um, tricked the devil into um there's a bunch of different versions but but in different versions he tricks the devil and then in order to um, get the devil out of his trap he says um you have to not take my soul to hell and um so the devil says fine and he lets him out of his trap and um he gets to walk eternity now living um a hellish kind of life without having to go to hell and because he tricked the devil and that was the story of lazy jack and why we have jack-o'-lanterns oh and so um you know, once Jack died, um, he was like, well, I'm walking around, but how am I going to see where I'm going? And, and the devil threw him a piece of coal to walk the earth with. And that's where the jack-o'-lantern comes from. He threw it in a gourd and um, became jack-o'-lantern. And uh, so so my poem, my little poem, a little uh, syllabic poem with some rhymes. I, kinda, I stole this form from, from uh, David Mason in his book and then didn't go. He goes through like, I don't know, two pages in this poem. Um in this form, but it's syllabic with seven, five, seven lines and then rhymes. You'll see, um, here it is. This is a uh, lazy Jack. I wander through all me nights. Like I did my days holding up the faintest lights. Like me mother always says, lonely bit of coal is me. Endless is me maze, but I paid my toll. Now I stroll ablaze. That's my tiny little poem, Lazy Jack, for the prompt this week. And uh, now let's go to Megan's poem. Uh, Megan wrote, and I haven't read it yet. Let's see what it is. This is An Ogre at the Vampire's Ball. I long to be sleek and pale as moonlight, red blooming at my throat like flowers. The way they shuffle and spin, it's a sight for deep-set eyes. And while I cower... They hope to be spied, aware of their beauty and strange grace, swan-throated thieves on a velvet lake. At least my evil is plain to see. There's nothing up my ripped and rotting sleeves. What they sink their teeth into does not resist. What I long to hold runs at first glance. The endings are the same, death with a twist. But only... One gets to have the first dance. That was Megan's poem, An Ogre at the Vampire Ball. Wonderful. We get we, a whole bunch of uh, Halloween stuff going on here. Let's see what you have. Um, who should we call up first? Well, the first in line is Angela. Angela Gartner. Let's call up Angela and see how she's doing tonight. Got her on mute. We'll pull up her poem really quick. Hey, Angela, how are you doing tonight? She's always so good. <laughs> <laughs> she is. She's she's very talented, or talented as she would make. I, my Rochester accent comes out. We didn't talk about that with David, but I uh, I say the word talented apparently very funny. <laughs> but she is very talented. Um, so so your poem that was Dullahan. I'm trying to remember. That's a that's a horse, right? Isn't that the steed of somebody? Or am I wrong? Well, it's it's the headless horseman. Oh, the because, headless horseman. Okay. Yeah, because. Uh, 
like Irving, you know, wrote the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but he actually got it from the Irish folklore of um, the Dullahan. And um, basically, so this is kind actually um, his version was not as kind of scary as the Irish version. So I kind of... <laughs> It's 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 kind of cool. I mean, I was learning this because I, I thought, oh, mythical creatures, and I'm like, oh yeah, like the headless horseman's kind of a mythical creature, you know, a mythical thing, and um, and it really is, um, definitely through the Irish. It's something that you know, I think it was like 1847 around is when, and like it's just been, you know, a lot of from what I've been reading, like you know, a lot of people got decapitated. <laughs> You know, that was kind of like a thing. Well, know, I'm so glad that's, that's that not a thing a anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty rare but, if somebody gets decapitated <laughs> these days. So we're, we're better off than we were then. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, that was like a, the big, you know, you know, to kill, to, you know, punish someone. It was to decapitate mm -hmm. someone. So, you know, kind of the headless horseman kind of came through that because there's, you know, but he's. He's a little bit crazier. He's definitely um, more about like death, but he doesn't take everybody. That's the thing. Like in the poem, you'll see it's like it's it's very um it's very interesting. So I was very yeah. That's the thing that I um I I was watching. You know, I looked up a whole bunch of different mythological creatures for this prompt, and I was noticing that that um back in the olden days. Like they would think people there was like, w will you be led to a nice place or led to your death? You know, and, and there was sort of more of a like a well, how will this person, you know, this evil spirit judge you? Whereas now if you watch a horror movie, it's just death, death, death. So um, I don't know what that means, but it might mean something. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, there's different ways to torture somebody. Yeah. And, you know, he definitely, uh, you know, according to the legends, but <laughs> for sure. <laughs> okay, well, let's see. This, this is the Dullahan. I, I might take a second. Yeah, it's going to take a second for me to get up the, um... there we go. Okay. Okay, go ahead, okay. whenever you're ready. The Dullahan. The rotting head rests in his hand. A human spine whip fits against his bag. His coat clings against his leg. The wind calls to him as he gallops speedily into town. On the Gelican, worm-eaten horse, he seeks the memories of being whole. The living lips up his damaged soul. He blinds them to look in their empty holes. If he knows your name, the departure is imminent. You have no gold to barter. You've abandoned your mortality and euphoria. Exist with him in the darkness and horror. Excellent. That was the Delahan. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> And that, that again, uh, Curran, it means without head in Irish. Because there, there was also a headless horse as well as a headless person. Oh, that'd be so. really creepy, a headless horse. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is definitely a good prompt yeah. for Halloween. And especially, um, you know, I'm looking out at the, at the woods uh, where I live. And, um, you know, you can see a headless horse anytime. It's creeping me out a little bit. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, you have a good night. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Okay. Um, it was Angela Gardner with the Dullahan. We have a poem um, called Dullahan 2 in Rattle. Um, it might be in the sonnet issue. It might be a sonnet, if I remember right. Let's, uh, who's next in line? Let's call up, uh, let's do Richard Westheimer. We haven't talked to him in a little bit. Um, hmm. Well, we will do Richard. Uh, he might have his uh, ringer off, which happens. Sometimes I'll call him back in just a little bit. 
let's do uh, Nevadita over in India so she can uh, get on with her day after sharing her poem. Uh, pull up her poem. This is uh, the reason I live. Let's see if that works. Hopefully we're not having phone issues, which we did on the uh, Poets Respond Live. Hmm. Nivy's not answering either. Is my... Uh... We'll try Richard again. We'll go back to Richard. Maybe he'll answer this time. I guess uh, Mercury is still in retrograde, maybe? Hey, Richard. Good to see you. Glad it, glad it worked out. I was getting a little nervous because I called you, then I called Nivy, and, uh, uh, and no answer well, I, in either place. So. It was entirely my bad. I, did, I had my um, speaker on mute on my uh, computer and watching you on my iPad. Well, so. well no problem. Well, we got you now. So, so who did you write about for your, um, your mythological creature? Oh, he froze. Which um, there's a little a little footnote at the bottom of my page, so you all don't have to do the research. It's uh, from Jewish legend, a human figure made of clay or mud. Kind of think the Incredible Hulk, but brown. You know, when I was a kid, I was like uh, 12 or so. There was that X-Files episode with a golem, and it freaked me out. It was like one of the, um, I don't know what it was, but after that episode... I had to, um, we had like a garbage, it was an apartment complex, we had, I had to take the garbage out, and it was by the woods at the end of the big parking, and I would like run, and I'd throw oh, it in goodness. and run back. After, I think I was a little too young to, to watch a golem. There was some kind of, um, mm. like some, I think somebody made a golem to um, become an assassin or something, and it was like stalking Whoa. people. I don't know what the deal is, but I remember being terrified by a golem, so... Um, well, the, the the mythical, the golems were originally meant to protect uh, Jewish ghettos from pogroms, mm -hmm. from, you know, from from the uh, uh, the rabble as they came to, you know, dispossess the Jews yeah, of yeah. body and stuff. So well, let's hear it. Called back into being as a new wave takes shape. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I'll put it up. OK, good. I was mud dug from the riverbank formed into this human shape by a hundred human hands, brought to life by amulet and incantation, set upright to peer outward through the mist to see what the shape of my maker's demise might look like behind me. Inside these walls, no one sleeps. They fret over spectral threats, put their ears to the timbers, hear the chittering of rats attracted even before the dying, before frenzy, ascent of death, out this pitched dipped sticks ablaze with rage that pours from the dark I rise, roar with the fury of their lord, crush the blood from the marauders, watch as the others before me run, fade into the fog. I sit back, would weep if I had eyes, would hear the sighs behind me if I had ears. Children crawl from the holes they've hidden in. A man ties his gray beard to my hand and I shudder. He pulls the phylactery from my mouth and I sleep only to awaken again to the same pain behind me. Fear huddled before candlelight before me. Fear lights the eyes of the torchbearers who shout, you will not replace us. 
you will not. And I do weep, real tears, a servant to their fear, and now mine, which makes me human for now, until my masters are done with me again and again and again. Thank you for sharing that. That was uh, called back into being as a new wave takes shape by Richard Westheimer. Thanks, Richard. That uh, fascinating legend when it, when you actually think about it and describe it. Thanks for sharing that poem. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Tim. Yeah. Talk to yeah. you soon. Bye. Okay. Let's go back to uh, Nivy. She she texted me. Oh, she's in a meeting now. Work started early. I I would appreciate if you could read my poem. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll read Nivy's right now. Then we won't um. Yeah, work started early and she's in a meeting. But this is the reason I live. Did she say what it's about? Let's see. Oh, a unicorn. Um, I chose to write the poem from the perspective of a unicorn. The unicorn that once roamed free and is now forced to live in secret and gather an army to fight the humans to free its friends. So this is Nivedita Karthik uh, with uh, The Reason I Live. And we'll just read it for her. The Reason I Live. I live in secret now behind the falling cascade of rumbling water that falls down mighty from his high gorge. I once ran free through the forest green. I flew across the rainbow and touched the stars. I live in secret now, behind the falling cascade of rumbling water that falls down mightily from his high gorge. Under the crescent moon I now run wild, Across fallow lands that merge with, with the sky, Lonely and alone, I yearn for my friends, But I live in secret now, Behind the falling cascade of rumble wa rumbling water That falls down mighty from this high gorge. My mane is embedded with a thousand tales Of fairies and pixies and fawns, Lost to the human hands, they now lie trapped. Trapped in glass jars and left to die. So I live in secret now, behind the falling cascade of rumbling water that falls down mighty from this high gorge. Inside me snowballs a stormy squall and glitter tears drip down my face. I am not beauty, grace, magic, and mystery, not gentle, pure, pleasant, and charming, because after all, I live in secret, behind the falling cascade of rumbling water that falls down mighty from this high gorge. I gather my coven and hide in secret behind the falling cascade of rumbling water that falls down mighty from this high gorge. When the time is ripe, you will soon see the power of a unicorn like me. And that was Nivedita Karthik. Um, as always, wonderful poem. I love that ref the refrains in here. I live in secret. That seems like it could be a metaphor. Um, great poem. The reason I live. Thanks for sharing that, Nivedita. Um, and let me move on to um, Caitlin Buxbaum. Hey, hey, Caitlin, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good. I was trying to do too many things at once, and I had you on TV again, so I had to mute you. No problem. You know, I imagine, I just realized, I kind of imagine you when you call in at like a NASA control. Like, I think it's the headphone with the <laughs> thing, but I imagine you have like six computers going um, and like eight screens, and you're like, you know, f making sure that the um, ask, you know, satellite lands on the asteroid and then also reading a poem. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, maybe I'll have to write a poem about that. So, so what, um, what did you write about? Um, Calipuliu, I don't know how to even how to say it. I'm so happy that you attempted Cali that. <laughs> um, maybe? Almost, maybe, sort of. 
uh, Kalipiluit. And it is something I just discovered, kind of through random searching on the internet. It's, that's the plural form of a creature in Inuit mythology um, that is basically like a female sea creature that steals, steals children off the sea ice in the Arctic. Um, and what people say is that that story was developed, you know, to keep kids off thin ice in the spring. You know, don't go out alone or the kalapilapu uh, will get you. Um, and I, so I never heard of it before, but I was looking for creatures. I wanted to do something non-standard and found this. Yeah, that's cool. I, I'd never heard of that before. I love learning. That's my favorite. That's my favorite thing about reading submissions, especially is just learning new cool stuff. So I'm not going to try to say it again though, yeah. but, but go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah. And I've been trying to practice pronouncing it myself, so I'll try not to screw it up. If we happen to have any Inuit listeners, I would love for them to correct me. <laughs> All right. Kalapilowit. It's said they eat the unaware, the foolish youth who venture out, alone beyond protective stairs, and onto sea ice, elders doubt. Perhaps they're hungry, some men say, while others nod their solemn heads. But mothers know the price they pay when careless children end up dead. If a curious babe is lost to the depths of the Arctic Sea, it is a Kalapilux gain her fulfilled wish for progeny. Her cold, unary existence, you see, is more than she can bear. And so she lures, with her sweet scent, young nomads to her kelpie hair. You may not catch a glimpse of one sulking in the Inuit spring, but if you dare to pause, to listen, hear their lament with sympathy. Excellent. That was Kalapiliut. <laughs> By, sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> By uh, Caitlin Buxbaum. We need yeah. that, though, here. Even in Southern California, there's a lake like like four miles down from me where people fall in and drown all the time because people in California don't know about ice. And uh, we need some kind of legend to scare them from uh, from falling in the ice. There's a video if anybody wants to search. Um, and uh, it shows just one person after like people try to rescue the person who fall in then they fall in it's like a 10 minute video of just like if it weren't like dangerous it would be some kind of uh you know like keystone cops blooper kind of thing um it's almost funny but it's like terrifying at the same time it's like Mm -hmm. yeah so um ice warnings are very important uh, mythological creature thanks (laughs) thanks for that for sharing that (laughs) yeah you'll have to get your your sci-fi fantasy mythology writer friends to get yeah, on that. Yeah, we, need that, we need that. It'll save <laughs> lives for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. That was great. Yeah, too. have a good one. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's call up Sally Dunn. Hello. Hey, Sally. How are you doing tonight? Doing okay. Um, so, so what did you write about? Dragon Dreams. So I'm imagining it's a dragon. Yes. Um, it's actually a poem that I had... Uh, Sitting around, um, not being completed, and basically in disarray, and I ended up doing almost a complete rewrite of the thing. <laughs> Excellent. That's like a, a perfect uh, way to use the uh, the prompt poem. So um, is there anything else you want to say about dragons, or do you just want to read it? I'll just read it. Okay, go ahead whenever you're ready, then. Okay. Um, dragon Dreams. It is not... 
a thing of swans to understand the contemplations of desert dunes. It is not a thing of humans to consider the joys of electrons. It is not a thing of dragons to exist, but they do. Dragons understand the musings of desert dunes. They delight in the laughter of electrons. Yet this is not why dragons exist. They live because it is a thing of children to dream. Excellent. That was Dragon Dreams by Sally Dunn. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sally. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Okay. Um, we have to move kind of quickly. We're running out of time. Um, maybe we have room for maybe like two more people. Let's, um, let's call up Brenda, who um, called right when the lines opened. Uh, I'll find Brenda's poem. I don't think we're going to be able to get to everybody today. I'm sorry, but we'll do two more. So the phone's ringing. This is Brenda Kamerinsky. Hey, Brenda, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. A, a really good night of poetry. Um, what did you write about for the prompt? Um, I wrote about wraiths. Wraiths? Well, a wraith. Interesting. So what is a wraith? I remember um, when I was a kid, I played uh, Dungeons and Dra- or not Dungeons and Dragons, Dragon Warrior. The first like role playing game on the NES, and there were wraiths and wraith knights were the worst, like the the scariest uh, enemy that you could come across. So, what is a wraith? Although I've never really known what what's a wraith. So, according to my research, they are somebody who had a spell backfire on them and basically cursed themselves. They become trapped on the earth. They become very powerful, but they become full of hatred and and just want to kill oh wow that's interesting I, I, <laughs> yeah i had no idea okay so um yes. so i am wraith go ahead whenever you're ready unless there's anything else you want to say about it first no let's go okay let's go <laughs> i am wraith i was once living like you full of hopes and dreams until my parents betrayed me a child I was sold to a rich lord and lady. I served their children, spoiled, selfish brats, infuriating. I escaped that hell and joined the witch in the woods, learned every spell she knew, and taught myself more. Then came that day, the hex cast severed my soul. I was cursed to an eternity of walking this plain, my countenance dark, but my power's strong. I sought my revenge, took the Lord's children, added their souls to my realm. Then the Lord and Lady, with a touch, I sucked the life from my betrayers. How they begged for mercy. Such delight. I have wandered now for a thousand years. Hatred is my existence. My presence chills the air. Dismay and despair, my calling card until the end of time. I desire to visit you. Oh, very creepy. <laughs> I am raised <laughs> by Brenda Kamerinsky. Thanks so much for sharing that, yeah. Brenda. Yep. All right. Happy Halloween. <laughs> yeah, you too. Happy Halloween. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to Dragon Warrior, which was a, it's a great game, by the way. Um, okay, let me, uh, we have time. Let's just do one more person. Um, actually, really quick, let's do, um, Vicky Miko has a, um, let's see, 
really quick. She has another uh, Haiga. Um, and this is uh, for the prompt. So let, so let's uh, let's. I'll just read this really quick. I think Vicky can't be here live, but uh, let's put this up really quick. Um, so this is God, and she said she'd been traveling to the south uh, when she wrote this. God made the world in His grip to fear Him and praise Him and worship. He conjured Adam and Eve just to get the folks to believe. Now God and the devil use us as their bargaining chip. Repent. And that's a billboard that says repent there that she took a photo of. Um, hi, goodbye. Vicky Miko, thanks so much for sharing that, Vicky. Um, okay, let's move on really quick to um, one last person. Uh, we'll do Joy Stahl. And um, sorry if I didn't get to you today. I, I got to as many people as I could. But we'll call up Joy as the last guest. And then I have to get the kids to bed and whatnot. Let me throw this in a Word doc really quick. Hello. Hey, Joy. How are you doing tonight? All right. We had a bunch of snow. So my Really? Where, where are you? I can't, I can't remember. Southwestern Kansas. Oh, right snow on the southwestern border Kansas. with Colorado. So. Well, it is that time time of year, I guess. We're, we're cold outside mm-hmm. where we are for sure. It's um like... I don't know. I had to drain the uh, sprinkler lines yesterday because I didn't want them to freeze. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, and I got to patch the roof still, which is my least favorite time of the year. But anyway, yeah. a grin without a cat. So, so what is this about? Well, uh, first, the, the, my journey to finding a topic. Uh, I started out with thinking about Grendel. Uh, because, of course, as an English teacher, that's my first thought. And then I thought, no, that's too done. So how about Morlocks? And I really couldn't get anything on that. And then, because I'm in the middle of teaching a horror unit in eighth grade, uh, I wrote a title and nothing more, uh, Mrs. Shelley Ruined My Street Cred. Uh, so that's going to be a future poem. <laughs> but then I then I got to the Cheshire Cat. So. Awesome, the Cheshire Cat. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's not a mythological creature not, I thought of. Um, let me. Not precisely mythological creature, but it shares characteristics with them. So I think. No, I think it would... totally counts. There's no no doubt about that. So let's do a grin without a cat. Go ahead, whenever you're ready. It's on screen for everybody. All right, a grin without a cat. I didn't mean to confuse the poor girl. Honestly. She needed to know the truth if she wanted to survive her journey through this land. If you don't know where you want to get to, it honestly does not matter which way you go. When portals to alternate universes are in play, then things get more confusing. Not to mention disorienting. So many body parts to remember to bring along. So many words to remember in so many languages. Mad. Quite mad. We're all mad here. We might be mad there, too, but mad might mean something else entirely. And if you think it's odd to see a cat's grin linger long after the rest of it has disappeared, imagine how that looks in the reality where I'm appearing. I lost track of Alice after the altercation with the king and queen. There was method in my madness to materialize only my head in that dimension. Meanwhile, an equally confused crowd alternately contemplated 
my headless body. I have no idea what they thought, since Alice waited for my ears to appear before she spoke. I suppose her madness contained the most method of all. I hope she walked long enough. I hope she got somewhere. Excellent. I love that uh, so many parts to remember to bring along. That's a great line. A Grin Without a Cat by Joy Stahl. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. Thank you. Yeah, good night. So that is the show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, you know, I've been a fan of David Mason for a long time, so it's nice to talk to him. That's the first time I've ever talked to him. And um, um, the prompt for next week. Oh, wait, no, you know what? There kind of is no prompt for next week. Um, the prompt for two weeks from now, because next week is election night. And, um, you know, I don't want to do a show on election night. That'd be weird. Um, but what we're going to do is have um, the interview that I did back in June with um, Jan Beatty. Uh, let me put that on screen here. This is uh, next week's guest going to be, oops, next week's guest going to be Jan Beatty, um, which is the interview that appeared in Rattle number 69. So if you subscribe to Rattle, you've already read it, but you can actually see how the interview came to be and how we condensed it down a little bit. But Jan talks about... Um, um, growing up is is um, an adopted child, um, and um, it's for the issue that was a tribute to service workers. She worked as a waitress for a long time as she sort of launched her writing career, and uh, that's going to be rattle number sixty five uh, with Jan Beatty. But before we do that, I should let you know the next prompt the week after that um, is going to be here, right on the screen. Write a concrete poem. A poem that takes a particular shape on the page. The content of the poem should have a connection to the shape. So, um, for example, um, I think in issue number 32, we have a poem that is um, about, it's called Darjeeling. I can't remember what it's called. But um, it's about tea, and it's shaped like a teacup. So it's the kind of thing that we're going to do. Hopefully the shape can sort of illuminate or like, add commentary to what the poem is but that's what a concrete poem is a poem with a shape so the uh, theme for next week is write a shape poem a concrete poem um, um any and really any poem where the shape sort of adds meaning to the poem um the shape of the text on the page um, there's another poem that we wrote um that we published I can't remember who it's by um but there's a poet who does wonderful ones, and this was about the Grateful Dead, and it was shaped like a flame coming up. Um, who was it? I'll have to look that up later. But um, So the prompt for next week is to write a concrete poem, and that's actually going to be the prompt for two weeks from now, because next week there will be no prompt. There will just be the live premiere of my interview with uh, Jan Beatty, uh, which appeared in print in rattle number 69, and uh, you'll watch it live. Um, she also read a few poems, and um, in the same that we did um, in August with uh, Paul E. Nelson. So um, Tuesday night, if you want to take a break from politics, tune in live to watch the interview with Jan Baby on Rattlecast number 65. Hope to see you then, and um, good luck on the election and all of that. I will uh, talk to you later. Good night.